1: Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsler Powers. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm
2: doing good. I was geared up to say thank you, Wen Powers. I remembered from last time. I was like, oh, we got to find a way. And then, like, midway through the intro, was like, oh, right, he can say his own name like everyone does. I'll
1: be honest with you, Andrew, I remembered I could say my own name <laughs> halfway through saying my own name there.
2: Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm glad we got that sorted. This one was a lot of fun. We have our first return guest, Mike Kaplan, who I, I've tried to stop saying this to him because I feel like I say it every time we talk, that he was one of my inspirations getting into comedy. He's so good. He's so good. He was He was someone that I watched for years beforehand. I, the first time we had him on, I told the story about that. I've tried to stop doing that <laughs> now because he's heard it so many times. Uh, but it was fantastic having him back on to do uh, another movie history where you found some great history here on remakes which was a really cool subject
1: i just realized our first repeat guest is our episode about remakes
2: i'm loving that i i really enjoyed that <laughs>
1: woof i i just that just occurred to me and wow what a perfect marriage of topic and guest
2: yeah guys that's we're gonna go ahead and pretend that was absolutely planned <laughs> this was a very deliberate as we always are on this show
1: I'm I mean, you know me. I'm I am a full on movie nerd. So I live a few blocks down from the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, which shows movies first run and revival on film. They're one of only a handful of theaters in the entire country that can play movies on 75 millimeter film, which is cool as hell.
2: When this is something that you have discussed recently, because you and I have been talking about going to see Lord of the Rings, (laughs) and I believe your exact words. I cannot stress enough how excited I am (laughs) about the 75 millimeter film.
1: 75 millimeter film is the coolest thing because so traditionally film is presented on 35 millimeter film. So this gives you pretty much twice the space uh, in which to project the picture on, which provides better clarity, but it still has the film grain and the pops uh, that you kind of see in the corner that you get with traditional film that you just don't get with digital projectors or like filters that people try to add to make it look like film. It's a really cool experience, Andrew. So talking about remakes, especially with how film works and how how that kind of led to remakes. I feel like it, it's the perfect thing for nerd shit in my brain. <laughs> so it's great that I got to do the research for this one.
2: It was fantastic. It was really fun to talk about. Also, guys, Mike Kaplan is going to be coming to Chicago. He's got a show here August 1st. Uh, this will be coming out right before then. So he should be playing Minneapolis right about now. If you're in Minneapolis, go to Mike Kaplan. That's dot com or Mike Kaplan on all the social media to see his schedule. He also has the album, AKA, which is one of my favorites is. he has a newsletter on Substack. He also has two podcasts. I don't know how he does two of these, and they're both so good. The Faucet and Broccoli and Ice Cream. You
1: would think that he would let one fall to the wayside.
2: He doesn't. No. <laughs> like, I mean, we we try very hard to never half-ass the show, but if we had two, they would both be half-ass. This takes all of our energy.
1: <laughs> oh, God. I would have one cheek in each show, man. I would, I would fully half-ass both. I have a hard time being a guest on other podcasts when we're doing this podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's exhausting. Austin guys so thank you very much Mike Kaplan for doing two shows while you're on tour and making time to come on this one this was so much fun we got some really cool history it was so much fun to talk about and I got to learn a lot of stuff here so yeah let's get into it let's go Mike Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. You're the first return guest that we've had here. Thank you so much for coming back. It's an honor. Thank you for letting me come back
3: like I wanted to.
2: Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm going to get to meet you in person for the first time after doing multiple shows together over the past year online, because you've got a tour that you're starting on like now-ish. I don't know when this is coming out. Is this coming out like the 27th one? Yeah, I believe so. A lot of confidence there. We're going to say the 27th. So (laughs) you'll be in Chicago soon. You should be doing like your Minneapolis leg right about now, right? right. It starts quote tomorrow. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm in Minneapolis the
3: 28th to the 31st, and then August 1st, I'm in Chicago, and uh, I'm excited to see you and be seen by you in a more quote real way. Right. <laughs>
2: so what what venue? What are you where are you playing here? So
3: my friend Rebecca is a minister at a church called Gilead Chicago, named before the Handmaid's Tale TV show took off. A nice Gilead. Uh, I really love. Love the church community it's like when i'm in chicago i go to it and uh over the lockdown portion of the pandemic uh they were doing it on zoom and so i sort of uh became a, a new york member of their extended community and so it's happening out they they like have wandered around to different locations they're like a bar church they most of their church happens in bars as opposed to churches but this show will actually take place i believe the address is like on the evite and on my my website but its uh it'll be outside of church
2: that's fantastic and yet yeah, guys you can go to mike Kaplan.com as well as mike Kaplan on like all the social media to keep up with this schedule but yeah I'm very excited to see this so that that's fantastic getting back to live shows obviously when and I have covered that like every episode now because we're so excited to be back doing things on stage.
1: I'm so happy to be back. (laughs) It just actual laughter from a crowd of people turns out to mean a lot more to me than just like people unmuting their mic to just go, ha, yeah and then muting their mics again.
3: Say more about that. Why do you feel that way?
1: I feel like because they have to make a conscious choice just to be like, hey, just so you know, I liked this joke rather than it being just a gut reaction. They have to inform me on purpose that they liked my joke. Whereas before I was just getting the reaction from them purely from the power of a joke, or sometimes bombing, and that's also very helpful to know. Just to
3: be clear, also I agree with you, I resonate with you, and I'm sorry I made you say more about it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> totally fine. One of the weird things doing the shows over at Zoom, too, was you get to this stage where it's like you, you've told this joke so many times, you know this is good, but you know the reaction you're supposed to get, too, and you start getting in your head about this. Am I? Am I funny? I, I, I really thought I was before all this started, and getting back on stage. Well,
3: that's why during the last Lockdown when I was performing almost exclusively online, I opted to not really do. My act proper. Like, I, I, you know, I wrote new jokes that were sort of, you know, specific to the time, to the moment. And I riffed a lot and ad libbed and improvised, you know, three things that are the same. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we call a rule of three in comedy, where you say the just three synonyms, I believe, yeah. and uh, like Goldilocks and the three th- synonyms style, each one of them <laughs> just right. I know the story. So I would do things like this on a show that was like, is it a show? Is it stand up? Is it a podcast? Am I alone? Or is anybody there? Is anybody audible? Is anybody listening? Is it a performance art piece? To the point that if I was doing a show where even if I did my, you know, quote unquote, best jokes, jokes that have made, you know, whatever highest percentage of people laugh in the past, that wouldn't get the optimal like reaction. My best joke could get nothing. And so I'm like, well, if my best joke would get nothing, why not say (laughs) brand new things that uh, I go, I went the other way. You do your best jokes and you're like, oh no, are my jokes funny? I do brand new things. And I'm like, these are getting the exact same reaction that my best jokes get. So (laughs) I'm really creating
2: something here. That is a fantastic mindset that I wish I had thought to try out earlier. That feels like it'd be so much more pleasing than the the stress of not doing. But now, right, obviously now we can get back to the actual performance and, and these real shows. So fantastic that you're starting tour again and actually going around the country. Yeah. And I mean,
3: it is harder to disclaim and justify in a live show, I can't be like, they probably just went to the bathroom. They're sitting right there. They, yeah. probably, <laughs> they, they, they silenced their mic accidentally. That's why I'm not hearing that much from this side of the room. Yeah, they're just they're just a little, they're just muted. Yeah. But yes, I, I am thrilled to get to perform in buildings. Ironically, I believe my Chicago show, Where You Are, is outside a building. Sure. <laughs> totally
1: fine. As long as they're there.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The people will be there. And yeah, Wen and I, of course, will as well, assuming we don't need to, you know, become members of the church first I didn't realize how much th- that it might take
1: convert me to whatever I'll be there yeah I don't have strong <laughs> opinions about being Catholic definitely not strong enough to miss a comedy show right <laughs> yeah and it's
2: just to be
3: clear it is a a church that I I support like queer inclusive they identify as a queer storytelling bar church oh it's amazing there's a lot of different types of people I was like genres of people is that the right thing I'm on a movie yeah. podcast. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of genres of people there and it's just I mean it's just a really you know it's a community full of you know kind people and some of them are like into you know there's there's Jews there there's Jesus types there Jesus was a Jew as well so that all checks out
1: that would make them a Jesus type yeah <laughs>
3: uh if you are a member of the community I believe you do get a discounted ticket to the show so feel free to join the church for that purpose you know come for the comedy stay for your soul you know either whatever you like yeah
2: <laughs> well we're we're both very excited Excited about that. So glad we're going to get to see this live. And as you said, you're on a, a podcast here as well. So what was the topic you wanted to discuss today? The topic is movie remakes. Remakes. Does that
3: sound fair? That, yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. If you want me to, I will do a remake of what I just said. And yeah. <laughs> here it is, more confidently, remakes.
2: Uh, so this is a, a great one to talk about, especially because there seem to be just consistently more and more of these. And we're going to start with some of our favorites in general. Wen has uh, done some good history on this, which we're going to get into too. And we know there's some terrible ones. So let's start with some of the ones we loved here. What were some of your favorites? For
3: most of these, I don't think I've seen the originals. Some of them are just like (laughs) good
2: movies
3: that then people are like, hey, you know, that was, which is so strange when a movie gets remade and is like, if a movie was bad, then usually they don't remake it. But sometimes they're like, I think this bad movie might be good later. You know, like Ocean's 11 is a movie that was like that for me. Like I never saw the original, but just like, I like a heist movie. I they did they did a good job. It was real fun. I like an action-y, you know, kind of a a very it was like a light, a light-hearted heist in the same vein. Love the Thomas Crown affair. Never saw the original. Love the the Pierce Brosnan Thomas Crown Affair, The Italian Job, Casino Royale. Then there's two that when I was looking up, like I'm like, what are the, the remakes that I've seen? I didn't even realize these were remakes at all, but uh the departed and 12 monkeys.
1: In prepping for this podcast I rewatched The Departed this past weekend and I gotta say that movie is incredible I have not seen Infernal Affairs which is the Hong Kong original but The Departed itself fantastic movie
3: do you think that the so the Hong Kong original did it have the English title Infernal Affairs or did it have a non-English title that somebody renamed the English wordplay Is it equally wordplay in (laughs) non-English?
1: that's true like the whole thing of infernal affairs is a pun on internal affairs so unless those two words sound similar in Chinese then there is no or Mandarin there is no reason for that to be a pun
2: right I'm very curious now there's no way I could find this in, in time but I'm very curious as to what that was we're
1: going to let that just be in the ether <laughs> in Cantonese as in Cantonese now I'd need to know the official language of Hong Kong or which dialect it is in Hong Kong
2: we're going to pause this for like 10 minutes while Wen finds this <laughs> crucially information
1: it is crucial because I, I i said one confidently and i don't want to be wrong anyways but have you seen the original oceans 11 andrew
2: yeah the one you know the rat pack era oceans 11 so bad yeah <laughs> they're clearly drunk <laughs> which i mean not unusual for any rat pack performance
1: literally frank sinatra and all of them are hammered and like i read that like they refused to do more than like two takes. yeah like, they didn't get it on they like you they're just like you got two options for this and like two was them being generous Generous. Like they'll, they were traditionally just going one take the entire time. And like every now and then they throw the director a bone because they all forgot their lines and they do it a second time.
3: I like number one that they're like, okay, we'll do it over. Cause we didn't know the line. <laughs> you're lucky. And the other thing that I like is that it's very, I mean, in genre, they're like, look, the guys doing the heist only have one take. So we're, we're method here. <laughs> we're just, we're doing the whole heist movie movie in one take. Let's see if we can get away with it. We can't. They'll fix it 30 years later.
2: (laughs) I I feel like that was it too, where Ocean's Eleven was one of the first where it made people realize, hey, what if instead of remaking good movies that don't need to be changed, we remake movies that had a great concept and were done wrong? Because it was so disappointing to see a movie come out where you're like, this is a beautiful concept and now we can't do it because you guys ruined it. So the fact that it's now open is like, no, this was was good. This should be redone better was nice. I'm
1: so happy to be doing this because I think Ocean's Eleven is a perfect movie. (laughs) (laughs) I asked to watch the Ocean's Trilogy like five times over the course of lockdown. Ocean's Eleven, crowd pleaser. Everyone loves it. My wife's sick of hearing me talk about it, but she'll like let me watch it whenever, which great for her. It's really keeping this marriage afloat. Ocean's Twelve, neither of us can stand, but I insist on watching it every time. (laughs) I hate Ocean's Twelve so much. It's like you took Ocean's Eleven and you remade it worse. So like that's that's going to be a knock on remakes right there because Ocean's 12 is not its own movie. It's a remake of Ocean's 11. And then Julia Roberts playing the character, playing Julia Roberts makes me mad every single day. I wake up mad about it. I go to bed mad about it. I will never let this go. And Ocean's 13, great. There's a true return to form. You got Al Pacino in there. The Ocean's movie's fantastic. The original, dog shit. And I just wanted to make that note. And also while I'm going on rants, I did figure this out. Cantonese is actually uh, the popular dialect in Hong Kong.
3: <laughs> I love it that that Julia Roberts playing what she did in that movie also made me like here's here's what makes me like I'm not mad. I'm look, have a, have a nice, have a nice movie. But if I were mad, the thing that would make me mad is that they were presenting it as like, I think a clever plot point. And they're like, hey, this actor looks like... Herself, Like that is not, I mean, I've been called clever at times by people who are well-meaning and the opposite. Yeah. And so <laughs> I like, you know, I don't mean to present myself as an authority of all that is or is not clever, but I do think that part of that movie does boil down to them saying like, wouldn't it be a neat twist if Julia Roberts looks like Julia Roberts? Yeah. It's like, I, Guys, okay.
1: It's a central plot point to the whole film. Like, it's not even a throwaway joke. If they did that as a throwaway joke, you could be like, ha, okay, I get it. It is like a main plot point. Like, the movie is almost derailed because Bruce Willis shows up and is just like, Julia, you're here. How are you? And it's just like, you can't riff on this for that long. The movie... Throws out its shoulder, patting itself on the back for this joke.
3: (laughs) (laughs) If I may, I feel like the size of the joke that would have been appropriate is, uh, I don't know if y'all watched Boy Meets World. Of course. There was an episode of Boy Meets World where there was, I think it turned out to be a dream sequence. It was like a Halloween episode where everyone is getting killed. It's like a scream parody in a way. I Know What You Did Last Summer. And Jennifer Love Hewitt is in it playing, not herself, but she is playing a character whose name in the show is is Jennifer Love Pfefferman and I was like that's the way to do that <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, oh, that's that's beautiful. No, I mean, I think what was so weird about it was it was just one of those things where it felt like they took something on set and just said, hey, we got this thing. Can we use this in the movie? And I would have enjoyed it more if they said, you know what? Julia Roberts looks a little bit like Kira Sedgwick. <laughs> what if we put some makeup on her and have her be? The-? It was just it felt like it was too easy and it felt like they were cheating.
3: I would like to add one other thing just on the subject of like it does seem like great idea to remake things that the execution wasn't ideal. But, you know, the idea was sound or solid and it's very rare. I think this the example that's bringing to mind of a thing that was like a great thing that got remade into a different great thing. I'm sorry, it's not a movie, but the song Little Help for My Friends. Yeah, I heard the Wonder Years theme song first and I love it. It's so beautiful. And then when I heard the Beatles, somebody's like, that's a Beatles song. And I was like, I don't think I don't think you know what you're
1: talking about. <laughs> and
3: then it's like a different song with the same words. And I'm like, can you even do that? I'm like, I love, I love it. It's so great. So do that with movies.
2: Right. No, I was well into adulthood when I learned it was a Beatles song, like a couple years ago <laughs> into adulthood. This is, was something that song I absolutely loved. And no, I mean, I, I agree that that was a, a fantastic way where it was something completely new, but the same thing. Like imagine
3: taking a, a movie of one genre and remaking it as a different genre, which yes. I, guess I didn't see the original, was the original Ocean's Eleven meant to be? a comedy? Because I feel like, imagine taking like a horror movie and remaking it as a comedy. like Have you seen the, it's just a trailer that somebody made of Mrs. Doubtfire? But
1: then remake it with a horror movie, yeah.
3: Yeah, they made a horror trailer of Mrs. Doubtfire and didn't have to do
2: anything except really add music. I love this idea. I want to do this now.
1: I will say, there is a recent example of this having been done. And it was done so poorly that I'm not sure if they can do it again. It's because they made made a Banana Splits movie, but in the form of the Banana Splits are all animatronics that kill people at night. (laughs) It's just like you have the Hanna-Barbera property of the Banana Splits, and instead you made a robot horror movie, which is just an odd, it's an odd turn, and uh, it did not make for a good film. We will get into different genre crossing, actually, when we get into the history, but Andrew, hit us with some of your favorite remakes before we get into that.
2: So there were a couple here that I, I thought were interesting. In particular, the mummy, because yes. I love <laughs> the original Boris Karloff mummy was fantastic. Where the Boris Karloff like introduced the concept of the gentleman monster in this era, which was fantastic. And then the Brendan Fraser remake in the '90s. I, we've talked about this one so much on this podcast, almost exclusively on non-movie episodes. Where at some point we just talk about how incredibly attractive everyone in that cast is, and they are. It, they are. <laughs> it was a fantastic remake. It told its own story and the times when they can take advantage of the fact that there's a lot of updated technology now. I, I do like when they realize, look, this was a story we couldn't quite do justice. I'm excited to see Dune because obviously when they tried that the first time, the tech just really wasn't there. So yeah, no, the mummy I thought was was great. They obviously tried again and did not nail it.
1: Yeah, they did try again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but no, the, the first two I, I thought were fantastic and I thought it was a great idea of just a complete, they took some of the basic core concepts and reimagined it in a, a really interesting way.
1: No, I would say that that's also an ex- example of a genre cross because the 1930s mummy was marketed as a horror movie of the dead coming back to life the 1990s mummy is an adventure just a swashbuckling adventure film like with a little horror like on the edges but like you don't think the mummy that version you think a horror movie you think of an adventure movie and then they made it into the 2017 one which is basically a comic book movie they were trying to make the league of extraordinary gentlemen pretty much but without having to pay alan more money which is what that whole idea was like Jekyll and Hyde was a character and they're like oh we're making a team of, of super powered individuals who are all monsters and it did so bad that they stopped doing that and they never released another one of these things but they're all different genres from each other but they're all remakes of the same basic concept.
2: I do also hate how badly League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because that was such a fantastic concept. And that was one of the first ones where I am watching when I was younger and just being so disappointed, like, now we can't do this again. You guys ruined this. This could have been so fantastic.
1: Someone's going to try again. One of my favorite remakes of all time, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Bad movie.
2: (laughs) But fantastic series. That's a really good point. It's
3: a great show. One of my favorites throughout my lifetime. And yeah, I also feel similarly don't need to watch the movie. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. Same with uh Friday Night Lights. Good movie, great series. I feel like those have been like some great things to just taking these core concepts and changing. I mean, they also changed formats, but it really improved. So that I mean, I, I I'm not against remakes. I know some people are like, fuck this, this is ruining my childhood and my memories. <laughs> and like those still those movies still exist. Like you can do new things with same IP.
3: Yeah, yeah. The thing that you is ruining your childhood is your aging process and your attitude right (laughs) I I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, do you know the comedian Nick Turner he is so funny and several years ago he did like I think it was for Comedy Central I forget exactly but a series of these short videos where his character was in a coma that was like the one consistent thing throughout the series and one episode involved him waking up and finding out that every TV show that he remembered is now a movie and every movie he remembered is now a TV show (laughs) and they did such a fantastic Fantastic job of him and this other character getting really frustrated at each other being like what are you talking
2: about the transporter is whichever one they thought it was <laughs>
1: that's incredible i love that so much
2: i absolutely i'm gonna look that up that's that's amazing is very much either big hit or big miss is the musical remakes like i really love the hairspray remake little shop was a remake Didn't wasn't sweeney todd a remake too the
1: musical was based on a play that was never a film and so yeah it's technically not a remake because it's based on a play and we'll get into it but a lot of movies are based on plays before or they could just do it on cereals and uh, toy
2: commercials. Right. <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I think those are, are fantastic too, when they, they realize obviously a story can be told bigger and, and are able to do it correctly. But yeah, I mean, I, I know as we since we started talking about some of the research here, when you did some good history research. So tell us how this started.
1: Yeah, because it's wind's time to shine with the research, ain't it? That's right. <laughs> so basically, it's impossible to really know when the first remake happened. And I'm really really going to get into to film nerdery here because film itself is fragile it is combustible it fades quickly the more you play a movie and you might know this from having a VHS when you're a kid the more you play a movie the worse the picture and audio quality gets every time you play it on film it's probably not noticeable but it does degrade every time it's used so when film first came out and was being sent out to places they would burn through it you could not copy it very well you could only show it so many times so the first remakes were them literally getting the actors together and being like do that thing again people <laughs> liked that thing you did before and all the old copies are gone Or we can't duplicate enough of these copies until the picture kind of delineates to nothing. Just do that thing again so we can make a new fresh set of copies to send to theaters. So basically it was just the same thing over and over and over again. They would get the actors back in, they'd reshoot it, they'd send it back out. So you could consider that the first remakes. But another problem with knowing what the first true remake is, is when talkies came, when sound was added to movies, and also when picture came in color later on, people had this like, how many times do I have to teach you this lesson old man like they didn't give a fuck about silent movies <laughs> and short <laughs> silent films anymore they basically let them be destroyed by time because once again film is very fragile there's a plethora of old movies we're never going to be able to see because they're just lost to the sands of time there is essentially the library of alexandria of old movies that we're just never going to be able to lay eyes on because no one thought to preserve film
2: a fantastic metaphor
3: if i may jump in also so and say so there's a joke that I tell sometimes about a real life situation that I think about sometimes where Margaret Atwood wrote a short story and she's written a lot but she wrote a specific short story that is in a time capsule they planted trees the same time that she wrote the story and other people are writing stories as well and in a hundred years when the trees are grown they're going to the idea is they're going to chop down the trees make books and then print the stories on those books and so the book theoretically she'll be dead almost every will be dead who was around when she was writing it but it'll be there in a hundred years and I'm like but I love Margaret Atwood like I want to read everything that she wrote and now I can't read this Like, there's a (laughs) why can't I read this meanwhile there are like 17 books of hers that I haven't read but I don't care about those I want to read this (laughs) one that I don't why do I care about the ones that I can I want to read the one that I can't and so that's the joke but sincerely the thing that you're talking about and you're like oh man there's all these old movies that we'll never be able to see meanwhile like what with the amount that's being uploaded to YouTube every second, every minute, every hour, every day. What with all of the movies, like in order to watch all, there was a time when you could have watched all of the movies. Like my grandmother every day, she, every, every, every Friday or whatever, a new movie came out. She went and saw the movie she's like, well, now I've seen all of them. <laughs> like there was a time when there, there weren't movies and then there were, and after the first one you could have seen it, but at a certain point, like, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are many that we like, we're able to see any movie today. But we're not able to see every movie. So we're always in a position where we won't see all of the movies. These ones, of course, because they're lost to the Library of Alexandria of Time. But I just want to say it's worse than you think. There's movies that are being made right now that you'll never see. Ones that are, they'll be around after you're dead. Ones that you just would love but (laughs) won't
2: see. That's all. This is a stunning and kind of devastating realization where I feel like this is something I should be stressed about all the time. (laughs) Realizing that there's no possible way I can keep up with this. No, I want you to feel the opposite.
1: If you allow yourself to be stressed by that Andrew, there's no hope for you. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Look, we've got a show covering this. I want to I want to have all of the information all the time.
3: Yeah, I just want to say this is something that was at a time for me freeing. That like when I first started like buying like when DVD box sets before DVD box sets existed, like it used to be like the stuff that I watched growing up, I missed an episode of the Muppets, I'll never see that episode. And I feel like maybe we talked about this last time I was here, but it became uh, Uh, like I'm sort of a, a completist at times I'm like why would I you know if I can't watch it all why would I watch any of it so like the first Buffy the Vampire Slayer box set was like a VHS collection of three VHS tapes which each had two episodes on them and that wasn't the whole season it was in season one it was six of the 12 episodes season two it was six of like the 24 episodes or 22 episodes and then eventually the DVDs came out and I was like finally I can see the whole thing and then eventually Eventually, with streaming, like, wow, now I can see all the things. And at a certain point, it became stressful where I was like, how am I going to watch everything? And now I'm like, oh, I'm not. <laughs> and
1: that's okay. <laughs>
3: yeah. It has to be because it is what is. There's a lot of things that aren't okay. But this is one that is more okay that it's not okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I, I think that's a much better approach. I think for me, it's less the wanting to absorb it all and more the research aspect of like, there is information out there. There are things to be learned and I want to know those things. Uh, <laughs> but there are also certain shows that for whatever reason were just so unpopular or not picked up that they have ended up on zero streaming services. And this is always a fascinating thing to me. Like Trial and Error, I thought was an absolutely fantastic series that ran for two seasons, John Lithgow, absolutely incredible in the first one, and I have never seen it pop up anywhere on streaming. It was also one of those that I thought should never been cancelled. But I want to see it. Exactly. <laughs> I think everyone should see it. And you can still, you know, go buy DVDs, hard copies exist. But I think we also get used to the idea of like the way this stuff is delivered to us. If it was not on a streaming service, it must not exist anymore. It's like, no, it's still in the world. It's still there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to confirm, Andrew, were you comparing film being destroyed by the ravages of time and not being taken care of properly to I can't find trial and error on Netflix and therefore it no longer exists.
2: Yes, thank you for summing up that point beautifully. That was exactly what I was going for there when. Thank you. So
1: you're, you're just saying you don't understand object permanence is what you're saying.
2: <laughs> that Look, once I can find it, it's like, it may be there. No way to tell. <laughs> can't possibly spend 40 to 50 seconds Googling this to find out. The permanence or impermanence of objects is actually one of
3: life's greatest things to grasp. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. There's, look, we're not going to get into the big philosophy of all that. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into what we know is one of the earliest examples of a remake, which is the French film La Rosaire, which was created by Georges Melies in 1896. This was a comedy short about a young boy who was very mean and mischievous to a gardener. It lasted for probably several minutes, and it was a hit. There was several remakes. American audiences went, and they were just like, let's switch out these subtitles for American ones. Let's get American silent film actors in there. Don't know why that makes a difference. And like every country made like their own version of this French short because they couldn't get enough of the rude little boy and the gardener that wished she was dead. That's your earliest example of a popular remake. And this kind of continues on. People taking things from foreign films and making their own versions. We talked about Infernal Affairs becoming The Departed. More recent example is Force Majeure. I believe, a Swedish film becoming Downhill with uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell, an example of a bad remake, an <laughs> example of how sometimes comedy does not translate between countries. I
2: think, too, the, the point of, like, they remade this during this. All they had to do was switch out the title cards. Like, this was a silent film for the George one. The, the, all they had to do was switch out the title cards. They could have got it exactly as is, but instead reshot the entire thing with American actors is insane.
1: Absolutely insane. But the most famous example of a re- remake was The Great Train Robbery which was a western about a group of bandits uh, that robbed a train and just for some context about the history of film this short is 12 minutes and it is on 740 feet of film so if you're wondering like how did people let like all these reels of film be degraded and destroyed it's because there's so much of it like (laughs) 740 feet for 12 minutes of people chasing a train it's very hard to store these in the proper conditions but the movie was a smash hit because it shot on location, it had dynamic shots like the camera moved which was a big deal at the time and it was also directed by Edwin Porter and that will come up a little bit later. So this movie was such a hit that immediately someone made a remake of The Great Train Robbery that came out in 1904, just a few months later. (laughs) Like They started working on it the same year The Great Train Robbery came out and they were able to just release a new movie called The Great Train Robbery that had Nothing to do with the original creators in theaters just a little bit later.
2: That is insane. It does not feel like it should be allowed. I mean, it's not now, probably. Right. It's
1: not now. So the copyright laws of, uh, there was no copyright act in America until 1909. And then that act did not include film as a copyrightable form of art until 1912 with an amendment called the Townsend Amendment. So you could pretty much do whatever you want. A lot of remakes were just like, hey, that worked. Let's do that. So The Great Train Robbery was just remade a ton of times in a short period, including Edwin Porter himself making a parody of The Great Train Robbery that came out in 1905, two years later, where he switched <laughs> out the bandits with children and the money with candy.
2: That is a bold move. that feels incredibly unnecessary. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, sure. I don't
1: know if he was trying to make like a pl- Point about like how easy it is to rip off films, but he he made his own parody movie of the film that he shot literally two years before.
2: I respect that. I'm, I'm kind of impressed.
1: But the first actual example of a full length film, so feature length movie being remade was The Squall Man, which was a Western that released in 1914. I feel like I said a slur, but it's the name of the movie. And it was directed by Cecil B. DeMille, who remade his own movie in 19. 19- 1918. Cecil B. DeMille loved remaking his own stuff. It was just what he did. He'd be like, I know how to do this, and I'm going to fucking do it. <laughs> so he released his own remake of his own movie in 1918. It was produced on a bunch of $40,000, and it made $350,000 that year. And in silent film money, that's so much money.
2: It really is. I mean, that's an incredible amount. And I mean, I think also to realizing the rules of this era, which guys, if you go back and listen to our Golden Age of Hollywood episode, the level of studio contracts here and the way that actors are very much (laughs) obligated to do whatever they're told here, I think definitely created an environment that was a lot more suited for, hey, we're going to get you to do this over and over again because it worked and there's no reason to try something new.
3: I mean, it seems like previously people were used to like actors being in plays where they would have to do the same thing over and over again sure. night after night. So they're just, they probably didn't even think it was weird to be like, oh yeah, I guess let's just do another one of that movie. <laughs> that's,
2: that's true too. That like, this is at this point, very much you, you had a, a stage background or you were just, for the Southern or at least you were just someone attractive and physically emotive.
1: Yeah, that's actually a fantastic, point that I didn't consider and I should have put in my
2: notes
1: (laughs) so another uh, big push came in 1927 when the Warner Brothers released The Jazz Singer which ushered sound into movies. So you know how audiences are. Once they see like a new thing for the first time, all movies have to have that thing. So once one movie has sound, all movies have to have sound. It's like that joke that's by a comedian we don't like anymore about like a plane when it has Wi-Fi for the first time. Everyone's like so excited and then the Wi-Fi goes down. They're like, no, this is bullshit. It's like that didn't exist (laughs) like 10 (laughs) minutes ago when now you're mad about it. That was exactly what happened with silent films. So all these studios are rushing to catch up. They have to buy new equipment. They have to hire hundreds of people who know how to work this equipment and actually like soundproof sets. They have to uh, get whole sets rebuilt. They have to rewire entire studios. This costs so much money. And if you're familiar with history, the Great Depression is currently happening during (laughs) this entire renovation. Old stars that they used to have who were silent film stars, many of them had thick accents. A lot of them were just not used to emoting using their voices so those actors could no longer be used so they're in mountains of debt they can no longer use their bankable stars and the people who were writing their movies before wrote them in such a way that they were like oh a card with dialogue appears now that says this well you can't write like that anymore so even the writers have to completely learn new ways of writing film so all these things meant that they did not want to take gambles on anything else because they're already in the hole so they're like what movies worked before. Let's do those again.
2: <laughs> that is a fantastic point. Also, I do love that Singing in the Rain was basically real. <laughs> that like, oh yeah, they gotta get new people that know how to talk now. Just because you were good silent doesn't mean you are at all good now that you have to speak. I love the idea that
3: on a movie set before sound was a thing, they weren't like, hold for that plane, right. you know, <laughs> hold for, hold on, quiet on the set, needn't have been a thing. I mean, maybe they still needed the director to be able to be audible but the, if oh no something clanged somebody hey can you stop hammering over there for a second <laughs> we're making a movie like the first available scenes once they were started filming there were probably just like lots of people just being like oh we gotta we gotta quiet everyone down
2: That you're right that's gotta be so weird too because it's not like anything was built to contain soundproofing either it wasn't designed to, to it, nothing needed that there was no reason to work towards that that had to be a very different experience yeah
1: and so everyone's in the hole so they're like hey what made money before maybe can make money again and that did not always actually pan out cecil b demille went back and tried to make the squall man himself a third time remember he's made both iterations of this movie so he's like oh let me make a talkie with it and it lost one hundred fifty thousand dollars and was considered one of the biggest flops in hollywood of all time so you live and you learn
2: That's an insane amount of money then.
3: (laughs) The fact that he remade it again and again does now give me the opportunity to put forth that I wanted to make a joke about a squaw man argument. That's all I (laughs) wanted. And now, uh, should I have? Maybe not. But uh, who's who's arguing? I'm so glad we had the opportunity for that. Thank you, DeMille, for finally coming through. This is going to be foolish and not at all worth it. But now I've started. So I just like to think about Cecil B. DeMille's name as if he were like Johnny B. Good, like Cecil B. DeMille, or the classic comedy trope of women be shopping, Cecil B. DeMille, you know, Cecil.
1: (laughs) Cecil B. DeMille. That's the catchphrase. That's the catchphrase. It makes no sense, but it has the candence of a joke to the audience. (laughs) Knows to laugh the best kind of jokes (laughs) what's your comedy like
0: all cadence oh yeah pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely but when it comes to a great shave you don't have to shell out tons of cash harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced underperforming products and decided to do something better for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash That's harrys.com slash blue wire for a $3 trial set.
1: <laughs> There's a fantastic bit that I need to look up where it's literally someone just doing a bunch of non sequiturs and just like doing all the cadence of a joke. Doesn't tell a single one and the audience eats it up the entire time. And I need to find that bit again.
3: Two things that that reminds me of. I don't know if it's the Andy Daly bit you're talking about. Yes,
1: it's the Andy Daly bit.
3: Five Five minutes of comedy without any content. It, uh, he's saying like intelligible English sentences, yet not... Sharing any information at all, just all comedy, you know. So, what else is happening? But not just that, it's it's masterful. I'll also throw in a plug for uh Chicago's own Nick Vatterot, who on I think it's on his album for amusement only does a version of what happens on like somebody's voicemail message before the beep. He does a rendition of all words that are not the right words that sound like the right words <laughs> leading up to the beep. Like, I think his last name, vaderot becomes like bitterscotch, but <laughs> it's listen to that whole album for that bit and all the rest of them. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm so excited to go watch all of these now. Oh
1: man, I love it. I love it. So back to history, because fuck it, that, that's why some people tune in, I guess. <laughs> so one of the big things to first remake was actually adventure films. So The Squall Man flopped. However, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, based on the Dumas story, was released in 1922 as a silent film. And then Captain Blood, uh, which was a 1924 film starring Errol Flynn. Both hits that were remade in 1934 and 1935, respectively. Two of the biggest hits to ever be released at the time. People loved the fact that they could actually hear, you know, the horses running around, swords hitting each other. Before, all that was just a guy in the theater on piano just like clanging whenever like contact was made or a loud noise had to be made. Now you can actually kind of have some more immersive things in
2: there. So Arrow Flynn is in the first Robin Hood, which was fantastic, and of course there have been other good ones. The one with the fox, undisputably the best. So the arrows used in this were fantastic. They had the long feathers on the back, and there were the these two guys that worked for like one of the film institutes that were obsessed with this sound and they couldn't figure out how it was made in the movie because they thought it was beautiful and if you go back and watch this movie you really do hear it and it adds a lot of gravitas to the the shots that he makes and it turns out there was no sound effect it was just the fletches on the arrow were very specific and the way that they traveled through the air had this really resonant sound and they tried so many things before they figured out it was just this really cool arrow that (laughs) that errol flint had to shoot so please go back and watch the original robin hood and see why I mean sound obviously we get it now but we expect
1: just it. just an arrow sounds so cool that it drove men insane it
2: was it was and it, it can't seem like that big a deal if you go back and listen now but you realize this is an era where people are still fascinated by the idea of sound being there and hearing the arrow whiz past you was incredible it's
3: almost as incredible that an arrow sounds like an arrow like it's almost the same as julia roberts looking like julia roberts you know what I mean? but like- <laughs> an audio version of like, how do we get these things to sound like arrows flying which, by the way also this one won't be worth it either arrows flying is uh, actually the way that Errol Flynn got the job is they thought that that was his name. They're like, oh, Errol flying, you know. (laughs) Errol Flynn is short for arrows flying. I don't know exactly how to, I'm going to remake this joke over and over but not release it. It's going to be my Cecil B, uh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Cecil no longer is DeMille.
2: This was a Fantastic trip. <laughs> Cecil has left the building.
1: I give that a Cecil C minus DeMille. <laughs> I like it. So the next big technology that came around was, of course, Technicolor, which then led to another crop of remakes coming about, but also now enhance a new popular version in film, which is the period drama. People could now not only hear the actors, but they could also see the beautiful sets, the dresses, the costumes. They could see that in ways that they could never see before. Before. So people started making things like Pig Million became a big movie that came out, and also the musicals had a huge boom here. Old movies started getting musicals numbers added to them when they would do the remakes, such as State Fair, a 1935 remake of a black and white film, was then remade in 1945, and they added musical acts. Same with A Star Is Born, which was released in 1937. It was about actors in a play, but hey, now you have color and you have better sound, so they released it again in 1954 with. Judy Garland, and then that became a story that they said, hey, every time there's a new kind of popular music, you can remake this movie, which is why they had Chris Christopherson and Barbra Streisand <laughs> in 1976, and Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga in 2018, a fantastic movie. All of them, actually, but I really like that Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga remake. And then the last final big push technologically-wise for why we have remakes is special effects, CGI. Before, you had had science fiction movies, action movies all these things and you couldn't do everything you wanted to do well now let's take those movies and let's make them big let's add cgi to them let's make the mummy which was a world traveling horror movie now let's make it into an adventure film with cgi you could actually show the mummy as a corpse and moving around and having action scenes you could have all these movies that came in the past you could now make total recall again but instead of the you know cheesy special effects you can now have cgi and yeah sometimes they don't work out sometimes the old effects were better. CGI did not make any of these things cooler, but it gave them a reason to say, hey, let's run that one back. And we'll get into kind of the big thrust of the show. Where did it
3: go wrong? I mean, it really seems like the thing that is good about remakes is they're like, well, people liked it before, so they'll like it again. But one of the things that people like is innovation, is novelty, is something being new. So if it is only the thing from before, and I feel like now a friend of mine is a photographer who like created a book of photos of comedians at a, like years ago and was trying to find uh, a publisher, a distributor. And all the big ones were like, we've never seen anything like this before. So we don't know like how it will sell, what it will be marketed like. So we're going to have to pass. And he was like, the phrase, we've never seen anything like this before could have been so different tonally, you know? Right? Like yeah. that's good. <laughs> like, isn't that good? Like I under- they understand why from the marketing perspective like we don't know what's going to happen and we do know what's going to happen but like novelty innovation is great for creativity and so remaking known quantities of course especially in volume like with all of like there's so many people that are like I've seen complain about like remakes and sequels they're like why aren't there? there's so many other original things being made also and they're, like there's more movies being made now than ever before and there's like some percentage of them are going to be amazing some percentage of them are going to to be unheard of. Some of those like maybe overlap. Some good, some popular ones aren't the best. Some best ones aren't the most popular. But certainly, if there are people who are just like the history is trying. How did the history wherein they were like, let's try to make as much money as we can so we don't go further in the hole. How did that go wrong? It went wrong by starting wrong and continuing wrong.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's a very good point too that, that that the intent behind this was always like you know. It, it's not the the creatives that that are there saying we should make this exactly as it was before because it made us money
1: Cecil b demille did do that let's be honest he remade his own film at least Portis when he did great train robbery parody he did a parody
2: right and i mean i think now you're right that, that then that was that was very much the creation driven now obviously it's a lot more studio driven but yeah i mean i, I think a lot of the, the challenge too is that then when they were remaking things it had just happened <laughs> so they knew there was interest and now when they're they are remaking I think very often it's missing the point of significance to an era where this was revolutionary at the time. And it doesn't mean it's revolutionary now. And a discussion I had read about Charlie's Angels and trying to, to reboot that was since Charlie's Angels, we have had some fantastic heroine leads. We haven't needed them in this at the time when Charlie's Angels first came out. It was so revolutionary having these three kickass women. And now to try and bring that story back was kind of like, oh, we, we have other versions of this now. In fact, we have versions of this without a man leading them that is more powerful and more influential and to remake without realizing the context of the time it was made in i think is often where something is lost in the translation thank goodness of course we still never have any real like
3: spider people so it's good to (laughs) every every generation make sure that everybody
2: keeps knowing who spider-man is (laughs) and those are ones too where i've been like yeah there have been a lot of good spider-mans which also brings us to the reboot option where it's like I have no idea where in the continuum any of these are taking place anymore. They just keep going. And I'm honestly okay with that. It's it's basically the same thing as James Bond. I don't know what timeline did James Bond exist in. I don't know if these are supposed to be the same guy or not, but I'm just kind of okay with it. I'm all right with infinite James Bonds.
3: Yeah. It's, it's very strange that like in, you know, in the Marvel universe, like Captain America, like existed in world war II and then got frozen till the sixties or later versions of it. Like, okay, Frozen till the night. That one's that one's handy. We can just freeze them until yeah. <laughs> now, and then now he now he's now. Which of course, like these are stories that are fictional, so like the characters are not going to do act the same as if they were real life characters. And I think as long as it's fun. Like when I like the Deadpool movies when they're just like we know we're a movie. We, we know it's what it is. I have uh, debates with a friend of mine who I I agree with him also. He's like they're just trying to make money so i was like that's true also and they're being they they get what they're doing they're like yeah we're a big dumb thing that's trying to take your money and we're succeeding at it so thank you for your money i
2: was like yeah i like giving deadpool my money sometimes <laughs> you know what because we we understood what the agreement was we i was going to give them my money like they wanted in exchange for being entertained and you know what i was entertained we they held up their end of the bargain
3: i I have a buddy who's a magician and he does a great act in which he demonstrates his pickpocketing ability and he's like, you know, pay me money and I'll show you that I can do pickpocketing. He could just go around pickpocketing people, but I like that he is, you know, putting some polish on it. Right. He's showing you. He's like, look, I could be just taking your money in life. Yeah. But I, I'm asking you for it and you're genuinely consenting to it. That is fantastic.
1: I think my big problem with remakes, and and generally I'm, I'm okay with them. It's when you take something, like if you're taking a foreign film and you're just like, I think audiences here will like it and you actually adapt it for your audience. You didn't translate, translate it and then say oh how will this work here no you actually are going you need to change it and have it be like if you're taking a french film and making it for an american audience you can't just switch out some references put it through google translate and see what you get you actually have to modify the film for the new audience that you're making it's why infernal affairs and the departed are both held up as fantastic movies and they're not taking away from each other in any way I have a problem with things like when they take the intellectual IP of horror movies and they mix it with the cheapness of being able to do CGI so they don't have to do practical effects anymore that take time and dedication and money and artistry. And they say, hey, let's take known IP, really easy way to make movies and money for cheap and combine those two things. And we got this huge wreck of just soulish hash grabs of horror movies that I love that didn't understand the original that went in there and just tried to hit the same beats and were cheap and not fun. Like, I should not have to watch a Nightmare on Elm Street movie where clearly nobody has ever enjoyed a Nightmare on Elm Street movie before it. And
3: (laughs) the great news is... You don't have to watch that
1: movie. <laughs> I don't have to watch it. That is very true. But we are a podcast and we're being pedantic here. <laughs> I think I think not normally being against remakes was to my detriment here because I was so excited to finally see a Freddy Krueger movie in theaters. And so I was there opening day. And what I saw was somebody who's watched all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies said, I like that scene. I like that scene. I like that scene. And did a greatest hits out album but instead of like the cool like in the original they clearly spread spandex on a frame so that Robert Englund could put his face against it and like move around it looks like the wall is like pushing out that took ingenuity that took a plan like it looks really cool and it's a great effect in the new one that is clearly just a CGI thing of just like a scary face that just like pops out and then it's gone and like it's not it's not as effective those are my kind of issues with
3: it yeah I think maybe this framework will make sense as I decide How I'm going to say this. There's a poet named Robert Haas, I believe is how he says his name, H A S S. I've only seen it written, but he has a quote. It says, Repetition makes us feel secure, variation makes us feel free. And so we need both of those things. We want both of those things. We want security and we want variation. If there's too much security, then it's boring. If there's too much variation, then we feel like we're flailing and floating and not grounded. And so there needs to be some meaningful equilibrium of newness and sameness in this context when there's a remake like I remember seeing like the Psycho remake where they were like we're doing shot for shot the same movie and like you know the difference is the technology the difference is the actors like I don't know what all of the differences are but for some people it might be like that's more the same movie than almost any other remake because there's not that many variables changing as much as when the genre shifts as when the Beatles turn into Joe Cocker. (laughs) So there needs to be, it's sort of, I forget if the, if I'm getting these terms right, but there's some paradigm in which it's like, there's assimilation or acclimation and accommodation, where one is like expanding like small steps, like when words in the dictionary, is it two different words or is it two sub definitions of the same word? Like how far apart is it? How close is it? Like it needs to be, like in comedy, Seinfeld like famously gave this interview where he talks about a joke. It's like getting the audience to leap off a cliff right he's like you want the other side like the setups over here the punchlines over there it needs to be far enough to be exciting if it's too close they see it coming and it's not funny if it's too far they don't make it so it has to be the exact right distance it has to be the exact right combination of if it's the movie you know the thing you know and the new thing or if it's a remake that like you've never seen the original it has to be good on its own it can't only be just like remember before there has to be some Creativity involved, like not just a mix and match. And so that's the thing. It has to be like, how new is it? So new that it's a completely different movie? And people are like, hey, that's not even anything like the beloved thing that I know. And if it's too close, like, hey, this is the exact same movie as the thing before without the soul, without the this. It's got to be, you know, this weird push and pull, this yin yang, this equilibrium of new and old. And it seems like for a lot of people who are making remakes, they focus on like the old commodifiable like, ah, people paid for it before, they'll pay for it again and maybe they will once, but then not again
1: Exactly, <laughs> it's like if you go to a restaurant and you order a burger and you bite into it and you're like, oh this one has jalapenos on it you're like, oh, that's a fun new twist on a something I love." If you bit into it and they're like, oh, by the way, that's crab meat. You'd be like, what the fuck did you just do? You ruined the thing that I liked. I ordered this because I thought I knew what I was getting.
2: I love how analogy heavy this episode is because all of them have made me reconsider. Like, oh, yeah, that is a really good way to think about it. Like, not like I was oblivious to this subject, but this is helping convince me of all of these points. I would
3: love to come back on again and remake this episode with fewer analogies. (laughs) More analogies. Only analogies. (laughs)
1: The next one is going to be, we're going to advertise as being in Technicolor
2: and there's going to be no video. And it's going to be called Analogies Burgers. (laughs) All right. I would absolutely listen to that podcast.
1: (laughs) All right. So we got into the history. We got into what went wrong. So I guess we're supposed to do in their defense. We did kind of start talking about remakes that we like, but fuck- It's our podcast. Let's do it again. What's some examples of things? We said why it's awful. What is some of your favorites where you've seen both?
3: I would like to, before I jump into this, say, I think appropriately, the same joke that I've made over and over again on this show (laughs) where it's the remake episode is the perfect episode to do this segment again. We already talked about why remakes can be good. Let's talk about why remakes can be good again, again. So just, I'm just going to, you know, keep, I'm Cecil B. Demilling this. I'm going to keep making this joke. So of remakes where I have seen both, I mean, I'll bring Buffy the Vampire Slayer up again. I mean, it's almost a different thing. Like, I think this is the perfect example of like the movie was campy. The movie was kind of cheesy. Like it didn't have like the cool slickness. My understanding is that Joss Whedon at the time didn't have as much control over the movie. And so it got like rewritten, re made. He wasn't in charge like he was with the show. And you know, I know that these days, Joss Whedon is also a character of particular renown in the world of guys who sometimes do things that were like, oh, I wish he didn't do that. Or I didn't know (laughs) that. I wish women didn't have the experience that they had with him because he didn't treat women the way that it seems like he has treated women according to some accounts by women. That said, the memories that I have of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like his capacity to to create humor and heart on screen, at least, if not in the lives of the actors. I've had beautiful experiences watching that. It all started from a movie that, I mean, that that's the perfect thing for a remake is, I think, as you already said, like an idea that could be done well that wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: definitely agree. Absolutely. I would say two great examples. I made fun of horror movies that did it poorly. So I'll just say the two that I think have done it the best which is The Fly, the original Vincent Price version, became The Fly, the Jeff Goldblum version, which is one of the best horror movies ever made. I'll probably put it in my top 50 movies of all time. I think that's just a perfect movie. And I say that as somebody who typically hates body horror, which will make it surprising to hear that my second one is The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing is also one of the greatest horror movies of all time. They took the premise of they're in the Arctic and they discover something and it takes them out. And God, it was done so well. And I'll even say that the one that came out in 2011 that everyone thought was a remake, but was actually a prequel, it's not as good, but it's not as as good for the reasons I said before, because they made it and everyone hated the CGI and they thought it was a cash grab. But it turns out the studio looked at it and said, oh, you're using practical effects like the original? Why don't you just switch all that out with CGI? And in fact, we demand that you paint over all of these beautifully done special effects you've done with CGI, and it became the reason that people didn't like that movie. It would have been great if they kept the original John Carpenter-like effects. So yeah, those are my examples.
2: I think those are two fantastic examples. My in-their defense mostly stems on getting all this fantastic research from when This was a deep dive. I've got some good numbers I'm looking at here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this was solid research. I'm, I just love going through the history here and getting to, to pick all this up. But also the big one for me, which I think it was a good example of... Of remaking it and taking the core of a story and changing it, which was Seven Samurai to Magnificent Seven. Those were both so fantastic and both held their own so independently. Where, because I hate when they just remake a foreign film and the idea of like, look, let's just make it palatable to an audience. It's no, sometimes it's, it's, it, it, the culture around it has an impact on how much you can appreciate it. Everyone should be able to appreciate Seven Samurai. But in an era where Americans were heavy into Westerns, this was a good switch. Obviously, the remake that they made in the 2000s was (laughs) the exact opposite there, where it just, it just needed to be done. They, they already nailed it twice in Seven Samurai and Magnus and Seven. But no, I think there are plenty of examples where ultimately you just see, like, look, there's an opportunity here to keep telling a good story and realizing that if you give two people the identical bones to a story and they're creative people, they're going to come up with two vastly different things. And it's wonderful that we get the opportunity to see that, that we get to see that creativity come out in these incredibly different ways where it, it's just an expression of the minds behind it. And I, I love that. And I, I love that we do get such variety because of that. And, you you know, obviously there are plenty of missteps, but there's a reason that there are like, you know, 27 Robin Hood movies. Robin Hood is a fantastic story. (laughs) Not all of them were great, but anytime you want to tell me a Robin Hood or a King Arthur or a Charlemagne, these are are great mythical and historical characters that are are fantastic to get to see them from different minds telling us these stories. And
3: arguably, you you ever hear the thing that it's sort of bandied about that there's only really four stories, you know? There's only four types of stories. So really after those four, everything's a remake. <laughs>
1: I will say, to your point, Andrew, saying that Robin Hood had been remade so many times, the most remade movie of all time is A Christmas Carol at 135.
2: Yay! Jesus, but there are some good Christmas carols out there too, and they're working on one right now with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell that I'm excited to see.
1: Did you just make that up?
2: No, that's coming out. That's insane. I'm really looking forward to it, in the same way that I, mean, I, I love the Finney version as well. That was a fantastic Christmas Carol. That was one that was worth telling over. Muppets
1: Christmas Carol is the winner. I'm sorry. Out of 130, oh God, 135 that was so good. <laughs> movies entered the ring and one came out and that is the Muppet Christmas Carol.
2: I have absolutely cried at Muppets Christmas Carol. It's a beautiful story. And as always, the Muppets do it the best. <laughs> but a perfect example, too, of, of the way that Muppets do remakes. They've done so many so well because, look, there's a different way to tell this story and in a way that only the Muppets could do That as Muppets. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> I think that That is, I mean, even if we hadn't already come to a consensus that there is a defense to remakes,
2: I mean, until every movie is remade as a Muppet movie, there is room (laughs) for more remakes. I think that sums it up so perfectly. So, what we loved were some really fantastic remakes. Where it went wrong were the absolutely terrible ones. When Hit Us was an amazing history in their defense, and where it went right was obviously Muppets everything. So, Mike Kaplan, thank you so much for coming back on. This was uh, so fantastic to have you here and to get to this. This with you
3: thank you for having me and i'm sorry that i'm going to say maybe no muppet schindler's list but <laughs> everything
2: else there are a few exceptions just
1: one quick thing when you do muppet schindler's list is <laughs> oscar schindler human in everyone else muppets oh man or is he kermit and you have ray fine's character be the only
3: <laughs> this is a great question i'm gonna <laughs> I would, I would ask, what is it, Art Spiegelman, the creator of Mouse how to go on this one? Because that's like, when you're doing cute creatures in the Holocaust, I feel like he's got the gold standard. He
1: wins. He's, yeah, he, yes. Yeah. So, Art Spiegelman, please come on the podcast to discuss Mouse and the Muppet Schindler's list.
2: Oh, boy. Ultimately, I'm just excited to see the role that give Pepe the prawn. <laughs> that's where it's really going to hit. And this is like our 19th episode where we've talked about Muppets. We just got to do that all in at one point. Yes. <laughs> So fantastic point. Mike, again, they can see you August 1st here in Chicago, Minneapolis, the very end of July. And you can go to mikekaplan.com and at Mike Kaplan, that's M-Y-Q-K-A-P-L-A-N to uh, find out everything about his tour. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. You guys are great. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, please uh, subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have our Patreon down in the show notes, which helps us keep the show going. If you can subscribe there and get some exclusive content. So, yeah, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.